today I'm sitting here in the wonderful winelands of near Stellenbosch on the Asara estate and it's it's been a wonderful weekend of gin and wine and food and I think there's no better way to end this week weekend than with having a conversation with the much loved wine commentator and food commentator Michael Ulifu. Welcome Michael. Thank you Holger, it's lovely being with you. And we've been friends for a long time, <laughs> yes. but we only met this weekend. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> isn't, no, no. isn't that the modern world? Absolutely, but great fun. Um, we should all have t-shirts saying, are we Facebook friends? Yes. <laughs> so we're here for the, for the gin, pure gin festival at Asara and yeah, it wasn't only Michael, there were quite a few gin makers that I hadn't met in person, although we'd been working together. Um, and yeah, it's, it's, it's just been a wonderful, wonderful weekend, well organized. And Absolutely, and are they not wonderful people too? I mean, they've all got their funny little quirks and, you know, different shaped bottles, beautifully designed labels, interesting different gins. It was a real experience. Yeah, and and how has the world? I mean, the world of wine and the world of gin. Is there are there any similarities? Look, I, th- I think the the one thing about gin is that um, you know you can't make it in your bathtub overnight. But I was talking to um, Colleen and Lizzie from Ginsmiths um, last night, and they were saying from the time they start um, on a Thursday evening by the Friday the next week they have the gin Mm -hmm. whereas if you're a winemaker and you're making a fine Stellenbosch Cabernet and it's lying in an oak barrel for 15 months or whatever you know it's and then you you want to bottle it and cork it and then leave it lie down for possibly another couple of years so while you might find a 2018 Shiraz on the on the supermarket shelf now with the screw cap. Um, if you're looking at the really serious stuff that you're going to be paying 200 rand a bottle for, that's going to take you three years, four years probably before it hits the market. And you, your family had to arrive on a ship here many, many centuries ago to claim the land. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> and start off, uh, how do you, what is this lovely story, but how do you, how do you end up with a small fortune in the wine business? You start off with a big one. <laughs> exactly. So either come from, from Holland or from Johannesburg. Yes. <laughs> but your story starts in the winelands. Uh, it as does. A, as a little boy. Yeah. My, my, my dad was, um, he was a bomber pilot in the Second World War. I mean, how these guys did it when they were like 18 and 19 and they were flying over Europe and dropping bombs on Dresden and these sort of places. And he came back. His father was the first radiologist in Cape Town. His brother and sister had both qualified his brother as a, as a doctor and his sister as a, as a botanist. And he came back by which time my grandfather had bought two farms in Durbanville, one of which was a wine farm, one of which was a wheat and sheep farm. And so it was the obvious thing for my dad to go to Stellenbosch University and study viticulture and enology, and um, <clears throat> which he did. And of course, he was an older student because so he'd been to the war. Because he'd been t- to the war, and yeah. um, he was very fond of whiskey and brandy and various other things. Smoked like a trooper, 
and when they came along to initiate him as a new student, he told them to push off. <laughs> but he 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 made he made good wine, um, which was um, he sold it to to KWV and, and to the then Stellenbosch Farmers Winery. He had since her grapes that he sold to Niederberg for their rosé and whatever. Um, yeah, so that was where I grew up. And, you know, the, the, the life of a, of a child on a farm in the 1950s and 60s was just totally, totally idyllic. And, you know, it never really stopped from there. I mean, I went... I went into the hotel business. I then landed up in London at the Cordon Bleu Cookery School. So f- food and wine have been have been part of me. I mean, I'm now 72 years old for quite a long time. <laughs> <laughs> but doesn't every every son of a wine estate or wine farmer also play rugby at a famous <laughs> boys' school? <laughs> yes, I, I unfortunately missed out on that one because I had an accident when I was 13 oh, okay. which put me out of commission for two and a half years okay. and um, so I didn't quite but my son made, my up, son for made up for it yeah. <laughs> yeah. and if you hear the one the, the noise it's the wind that's blowing through the what are these plane trees? trees the plane trees yeah beautiful location we can't sit inside it's it's just too beautiful to, yeah. to be outside okay and then you you studied in London yes and then um, I worked. In was the it ma- normal, or was it a big exception? What from to, to study in London? I, d- I think I think what was, I mean, if you could call it normal, um, I, I think people of my age, most of them went to the Lausanne Hotel School, um, and uh, you know did the whole thing. I I had worked. Which sounds at, like it's Switzerland. Yes, yeah. it is. Sorry, um, I had worked at Lanzarac in Stellenbosch for three years uh, for the princely slum of sixty rand a month, and I'd worked in all the departments, which is what they still pay. <laughs> <laughs> and I'd not done I'd not done much in the way of cooking, though I had been cooking at home from the time I was about thirteen. So that was where I wanted to focus, and really for ease because of the English. Um, I went to the Cordon Bleu Cookery School in London, where I did the certificate and the advanced certificate courses. The 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 mindset of the the two ladies who owned the school, Rosemary Hume, um, famous British cookery teacher, who in fact invented coronation chicken for Queen Elizabeth's coronation. Their mindset was very much um, of the. Um, the, the the rationing of food during the Second World War, um, which which had only stopped 15 years before I arrived there, and and also the purity of French cooking. So it was very very interesting the the way the whole thing operated. But certainly it taught me the basics, and I'm a great believer if you if you understand and can operate and do the basics, you can virtually do anything. And, you know, we eventually turned that into, we had three restaurants. Our last one was a national top ten restaurant. And, um, you know, if you've got a good team. On the farm or where? No, it was in Constantia in Cape Town, on the sort of edge of the vineyards, in a lovely old Victorian house. It was called Parks. And um, we had that for nine years before I took my first 
of three retirements. <laughs> <laughs> but but how do you start a restaurant? I mean, obviously you know how to cook when you and you learn all that. Do you also learn how to manage and run a restaurant? Not at the cookery school. No. I mean, that's something. I, I did a, um, a sort. It was a diploma in business management or, um, at Stellenbosch University. So that certainly gave me um, an edge on, you know, how to how to operate businesses. And um, if you, you know you got the right team, you got the right kitchen designer. You use a great interior designer, and we were very lucky that we had um, Jay Smith. She's one of Cape Town's leading designers. And in fact, I took her to Australia when I did a consultation there at um, a Voyager Wine Estate in Margaret River, where we set the whole sort of tourism side up um, with you know a hundred and ten seater restaurant and. Um, beautiful interiors which Jay had done um, in a in a Cape Dutch style house <laughs> in the flatlands of Margaret River. But starting start so was that your first business the the restaurant or? Uh, yes, I'd worked for Anglo American before. I'd mm -hmm. worked as PR manager at Bosch and Dahl. Yeah. We had the restaurant there, which was part of my uh, brief. Yeah. Um, but it was really in '86 that we went off on our own. There was a threat that we would be transferred to Johannesburg, which was not by not, not, not yes by Anglo American, which is not where we wanted to be. Um, funny enough, we now live in Johannesburg very happily. <laughs> um, so we then went off on our own. We had we had three restaurants. One was Padachang in Tilbach, which is a lovely old Cape Dutch building which had been restored after the earthquake in 1969 and then we had a restaurant in Hermanus above the old harbour called the Burgundy um, which was huge fun I mean when the whales came you know you'd have a, a lawn full of people eating lunch and a whale would appear and everybody would get up and run across the road to, to look at it <laughs> waitresses coming out with plates of food and no guests at the tables um, and then we landed up at Parks and that was our last um, our last business and that we closed down in 2002 and then I worked as a consultant wine food specialist for pick and pay for a while. But starting starting a, a restaurant 45 years ago must have been different to today? Very. Um, the whole style was very different. Yeah. You know? and, and the funding? The funding came from an angel. Okay. Um, we, we, we met somebody who, uh, he was a, a farmer had a farm in Constantia and went out in Wellington and and he 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 loved good food and he wanted a restaurant okay. and we just happened to be there at the right time okay so it hasn't changed that much you still need you still, still need, need an angels angel. <laughs> yes you do absolutely okay. even if it's your bank manager <laughs> <laughs> well they don't <laughs> Unless I guess it's a, <laughs> a franchise. Yes. It must be hard to start a restaurant. It is. Today. Yeah, and the style of the restaurants now, of course, have changed so much. You know, it's sort of, it's sort of good, good food eaten out on a, on a pavement somewhere, and and um, yeah. whereas the style of we we were, you know, what people like to call a fine dining restaurant. Yeah. Um, so you know, having been up in the, in the top ten, you had to be better today than you were yesterday and you have to prepare to be better tomorrow and you take your staff with you and it's hard work it's very hard work and uh, who did it appeal to 
the upper crust. I mean. It was your high high LSM, mm. and we had a lot of a lot of regulars who used to come. I mean, I'm mad for people, so it was um, it was very special having people come back and back and back. When we opened in '93, we were fully booked for three weeks before we'd even opened for our first dinner, and it stayed like that for a good couple of years, which was great. And and the people came for the food and to see Michael, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think, yeah, they certainly came for the food. We had a, an interesting and unusual wine list, which um, John Platter did for me um, in the early days, and then I took it and ran with it. But, so we had some quite interesting wines. But, of course, you know, that was 1993. Now we're 2018, and the whole spectrum of wine has changed so much, the breadth of... You know, people don't need cellars anymore. People don't even need vineyards anymore. And these young guns come out of college and they go off to Australia and Napa Valley and France and Italy and Spain and Portugal, all over the place. And they come back with ideas. And they don't want to work for anybody. They want to yeah. do their own thing. Yeah. And I, I don't think it's easy. But, you know, they buy grapes from farmers, they buy cellar space from somebody, and they're pro- producing some absolutely mind-blowing wines, these kids. Oh. They really are, which is very exciting. Well, it's also, I guess, an opportunity if you don't have capital. Absolutely. It's certainly the way to do it. Because if it doesn't work, you know, you have no (laughs) no assets (laughs) at all. You might have a tank or two of wine which you could sell to somebody. but, But these kids are exciting. I mean, young guys and young girls and just producing mind blowing stuff with interesting labels and interesting take on on wines, lovely sort of fruit forward, ready to drink now kind of stuff um, and stuff that is sufficiently serious in order to be able to to cool cellar it for a couple of years and then be sort of amply rewarded as a result It sounds it sounds like the way I would do it because <laughs> I, mean, I can't imagine owning all those assets even... Absolutely you know, the staff and the, yeah, that's the way to do it and um, if you get good grapes, I mean, <coughs> you know, there's a there's an old vines association, <coughs> which is um, started by um, Rosa Kruger and Andre Morgenthau, where they've gone around and they've they've listed every single old vineyard in the country, and what they're trying to do is that they're trying to convince wine farmers to continue growing grapes in these old vineyards even though the crops are are dropping you know Mm. instead of producing eight to ten tons a hectare they're probably producing one to one and a half tons a hectare they then have to convince the winemakers to pay a premium price to the to the growers Mm. um, which of course puts up the wine price in the in the bottle stores and specialty wine shops but I still think we pay too little for top quality wine yeah yeah we just want to <laughs> pay unbelievable prices yeah <laughs> yeah some of them are a bit unbelievable <laughs> and uh, what happened to the family farms um, they the village crept up all round okay um, my, my father sold the, the big wheat and sheep farm mm. the village crept up all round the wine farm and he he split it up into plots and created roads and um, sold it off plot by plot and retired to the seaside at the age of 43 
in a house that he'd paid 10,000 rand for, and if you looked out of the front window and down, you looked into the sea. Mm. So it couldn't, simply couldn't have been closer. Yeah. <laughs> well, they had a rich life. <laughs> yeah, at 43. Maybe not that healthy <laughs> to retire that early. Absolutely. Uh-huh. Yeah, and then after the restaurants, you said you did some consulting, and yes, I, I was I did consulting for a chap called Michael Wright, who, who, um, amongst many businesses, owned a Voyager wine estate down in, in Margaret River, and he he loved South Africa, um, he loved the indigenous architecture, and he kept on saying to me, you know, there's no there's no classical architecture in Western Australia. It's all rammed earth and zinc roofs and um, so he wanted and you know I'd had that experience at Boschendal where he'd been his architect was a chap called Jeffrey Summerhays who'd studied Cape Dutch architecture at Johns Hopkins University in the States and um, so we, we put this whole thing together and this now H-shaped Cape Dutch building um, if you're a if you know the Cape Dutch buildings well, um, you will know that there's something sort of slightly not um, kosher about it. But um, I've been there often, obviously, and there would be people would come from South Africa and burst into tears, you know. <laughs> um, and Jeffrey had a very clever way of creating a width in a room, which, of course, you know, the Cape Dutch buildings were limited to the height of the yellow trees that were growing around, yellowwood trees that were growing around the around the buildings. So, but uh, Jeffrey had this in, uh, very clever way of, of creating greater width inside. So we opened with a 50-seater restaurant, and within 18 months they were serving 110 lunches a day. So we then had to build a wing on the back um, for an, another restaurant. And here you have this... It could be in Franschhoek, it could be in Stellenbosch, it could be in Pau. Lovely restaurant. And they've just, they've just won um, in, in Australia. They've just won, their chef has won, their sort of top um, country restaurant chef. And, and the restaurant itself won the regional top um, vineyard restaurant. So they're doing really, really well. Unfortunately, Michael Wright, who was our client, became our friend. He died a couple of years ago, so... The whole thing sort of came to an end for us, but um, it's a wonderful country with amazing, amazing people. Everybody kept on saying, oh, you know, it'll be just like South Africa, which of course it isn't, because they're totally different people. Um, Amazing service ethic, amazing um, first world attitude to to things, and, and you know, if you wanted a side of salmon, well, then we'll just fly one over from Tasmania overnight, you know, that kind of attitude that people had which was incredible I think the currency is much stronger and probably allows for I mean everything is more expensive in Australia yes so you can you can certainly offer something different absolutely yeah Yeah. I did a Cape Malay buffet there and I wanted to do smoked snook and of course I couldn't find a a game fish in Western Australia, that um, that was suitable. So we, I found the fishmonger. It was sort of two two thirty in the afternoon, and um, I said to him, "I've been told that you can offer sides of smoked Tasmanian salmon." Oh yes, he said. So I said, "Do you think you'd get me six sides?" And he said, 
Yeah, sure. He said, but I won't have them for you for the morning delivery tomorrow. It'll have to be the afternoon <laughs> delivery. <laughs> so that sort of service, which yeah. is great. And of course, product, I mean, virtually anything you wanted, the in huge uh, Far Eastern population, people from Laos, people from Vietnam, um, uh, Thailand, massive um, farmer's market in, in, in Fremantle Harbour, which had a whole hall devoted to um, uh, Far Eastern foods. I mean, incredible stuff. And of course, fish. I mean, there are sort of like eight or ten different kinds of crayfish, prawns, any number of um, any number of, of fish, um, hand-dived scallops, because they, fortunately, the sea the seabed there is not suitable for drag um, for drag netting. So you have these amazing scallops. I mean, I would land at <laughs> Perth Airport always about 11 o'clock in the morning. And the first thing I would do was go to a friend of mine who had a restaurant and have scallops for lunch. <laughs> but lovely. I mean, very special place. Very yeah. special. And then you, you've also got... Um, you've, you've had some dealings with Portugal? Yes, I went in 2010. I went first in 2008 as a guest of Amarim, the cork people. And you know, they're the biggest uh, wine cork makers in the world and, and way ahead in terms of, of research and development. I went as their guest to, to go and see the cork harvest and follow a piece of cork uh, right through to, from Alentejo, which is to the east of Lisbon, right up to a porto where the cork arrived and was being turned into corks which was a tremendous experience. And I was lucky to go up into the Douro Valley because Amarim owns a, a Kinta up there, which has a fantastic hotel, and fell totally in love with the Douro Valley. And then I was very fortunate to be invited two years later by a chap called Anibal Coutinho, who is the wine guru of Portugal. Um, he, he wrote a book... Um, and it used to be called sort of like 257 wines under however many euros. W Neil Pendock and I had written a book the year before, um, which we called The People's Guide. And so Anibal then changed the name of his to The People's Guide, and Neil and I went over. And we travelled, gosh, I was there for 15 days, I think, and we must have tasted almost almost 2,000 wines. Um And and we we literally sort of wrote the book as we were as we were going along, and we'd get to these very very well run wine commissions, regional wine commissions, um, and we'd get there and they'd be ready for us. And Anibal would say, "How many wines you got for us to taste?" And they'd say, "96 or 108 or whatever it was." And you just sit down and you just work your way through them. Um, I loved Portugal. I would go back there at the drop of a hat. Fabulous food, great wine. And I was mentioning to you earlier about the wine estate people who'd they'd sort of cuddle up to you when you first got there and they'd say, you know, we, we only have indigenous Portuguese varieties on our or else they would cuddle up to you and they'd say, you know, we only have international varieties. <laughs> so, and they did really well with the international varieties as well as they did with the indigenous stuff. I mean, there's a, a, a region called Bairada where they have a grape called Baga, B-A-G-A. And Baga is... Um, not a popular grape but to go there and to hear the Baga disciples talk about it and to drink it you know where it is made 
Very special. Very special indeed. I love that place. And, and your book was in, published in Portuguese? It was published in Portuguese in Portugal, which is quite strange. To see um, your words. To see your, <laughs> to see your words. And the one thing that I did say in my introduction to, to the book was how sorry I was that the early Portuguese settlers had, um, had sailed past instead of... <laughs> instead of stopping on here in the Cape, because yeah. I think from a food point of view and probably even from a wine point of view, things would have been very different. Would have been, yeah. yeah. And uh, you mentioned earlier you met you met the Duke of where? The Duke of Braganza, who was the... <laughs> he's the pretender to the Portuguese throne. <laughs> the pretender. Yeah, and he, um, he and the Duchess came to a wine tasting in a hotel in Sintra, which is south of Lisbon, where Portuguese royalty had holiday homes. I mean, it's like fairyland. Beautiful homes with the quirkiest architecture you've ever seen. But there was this one one palace that had been turned into a luxury hotel. And we spent a couple of nights there. And one day we had this tasting of wine from Collage. And Collage is a tiny little wine region south of of Lisbon, and my goodness, we had some amazing wines there, Holger. Some of the, some of the whites were like you know, 23, 24, 25 years old, and wonderful reds, um, which had sort of lost their colour and had gone slightly translucent, and but gem bright and brilliant, and it was a very, very special experience, very special. I mean, today we drink 2018 wines. Yeah, the happily. Same. Happily, to, is that is that just a change in technology or? Oh, I think yes, I think so. I think wine our winemakers um, have you know they're they're certainly more travelled now. Um, I mean, Stellenbosch University is still the place where majority of them train, but a number of them do go to universities in other countries in South Australia and. They, they they spend a lot of time working in in um, vineyards in Napa Valley or you know Barossa Valley or somewhere. And particularly in Australia, the wines are very sort of fruit forward, soft, easy to drink. And I think that's that's what's changed. It obviously there's still great wines made from um, you know varieties like Cabernet Sauvignon. You just take here in Stellenbosch, you know, some of the great great wines of South Africa are made here. But it's different. Um, people have learned new techniques. Um, you know, the oak barrel is accepted, but now there are oak staves, there are oak chips, mm. um, uh, which, um, you know, give you that same sort of oaky support to the fruit. Um, but it's much cheaper. And people can't afford to keep in their cellars mm. wines for 10, 15 mm. years and, and release them when they're ready to drink. And unfortunately, the public doesn't have um, uh, cellars in their homes anymore. Or the public don't have cellars in their homes anymore. So it's a, uh, you know, it's an interesting thing. People now have businesses where they set up cellars where you can hire space and leave your wines mm. under ideal conditions. But I think I think the tendency here has been to create wines which are ready to drink virtually immediately. I mean, the other day I had a couple of, of of 2018 reds which are on the shelves already. Eminently drinkable. Big, blousy, fruity, wonderful, 
wines, easy to drink. I'm always amused. People say when I write about wine and I, I say easy to drink that I'm that I'm sort of condemning the wine with with faint praise. But I mean, who would make a wine that's difficult to drink? Mm. You know. And if it's easy to drink, it's so much greater pleasure, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Tell us about your books. When did you start writing? I, the, I did my first book in 2005. Yeah. And that was a sort of a memoir type um, book where I, you know, wrote about my f- family and my family life and my children and, and is friends. Is it still in available? Uh, no, uh, no. It's uh, I, I, when the company, the publishing company, closed down. I bought the remainders, and I've still got a little stack of mm. probably thirty or forty at home. Um, and then, then I produced a couple of books which I called Crush a Hundred. South African wines to drink now. It was a little, a little book, and that's really what it was, you know. And I chose my winemaker of the year and my favourite variety mm. and all that sort of stuff. And then, um, then Neil Pendock and I, with Anibal, continued did this um, a Guia Popular. It was called the Portuguese wine book. But Neil and I the year before had done the People's Guide, which was a, essentially a guide to mm, sort of supermarket kind of kind of wines. And then, you know, I discovered that you don't really need to publish books anymore. You can do it on the internet. So <laughs> that was really when my website started yeah, growing. And yeah. uh, we now have an amazing following and mm. um, I, even, I even succeeded in selling, selling art of wine <laughs> once for a producer which was probably quite fun but um, I think they had a bit of problem people wanting the wine and it wasn't available anymore yeah that's called an influencer yes (laughs) (laughs) and and the I mean writing books did that did that make money no no okay no, it simply doesn't. I mean, unless you, with with the People's Guide, we we actually actively went and looked for sponsors, mm. so the costs were covered, and in fact covered <clears throat> to such a degree that um, it was blind tastings that we did, and we had, you know, Norma Ratcliffe was with us, Anibal came out from Portugal, um, we had a sommelier, um, we had Kathy Marston, who was a, a restaurateur at that time, about to become a a wine educator and um, for that book we, we actually donated because it was blind tastings we donated a dog to these the um, guide dogs for the blind and it was quite amusing because I was invited to the to the graduation of this dog and he was beautiful he was a cross Weimarana Labrador the most beautiful dog and his his person for whom he was going to guide um, was a telephonist at the police station in Durbanville where I was born and where I grew up <laughs> which is wonderful that's a lovely story very special yeah yeah and and so I guess the books help to build your profile and I'm going obviously towards uh, the brand Michael Olifu yes. and the website and yes. all that is that I mean, yeah, it, it certainly did. They certainly did. Um, and building, building the website, of course, was was um, the way to go for for, for me. Yeah. Um, we're now, I think, in our 
third incarnation in terms of design and yeah. and back office technology. So what is um, what is the purpose? It replaces you writing, publishing books which don't make money. So you might as well make websites that don't make money. Or? Well, no, I think I think what you what you have to do is you have to learn how to monetize your mm. your website um, so that you you don't really look like you're advertising. Yeah. Uh, so we have website partnerships. We've got about 20 wineries. And do they pay you a monthly fee? They pay us a monthly fee and we talk about them. Mm. I broadcast on Fine Music Radio. Um, and then we've we've just approached a, a company um, in Gauteng which um, does advertising on websites. We started by two bloggers who wanted to monetize their websites. And we've just approached them and they need a month's worth of Google Analytics, mm. which I don't believe in, by the way. Um, <laughs> um, they need a month's worth of Google Analytics information in order to proceed. So it'll be quite interesting to see mm. in the new year how that, how that works out. And then just to be able to offer different and innovative packages to, to potential sponsors. Yeah, so you approach sponsors yourself? Or yes. Why? Okay. Yes, I do. And I choose people who I respect, who I admire, and whose wines I like. Yeah. Um, and it's quite interesting because, you know, there are big, some big wineries, and of course the people change as they do with big brands. So I find myself having to build new relationships with old partners yeah. quite often. But, you know, the, the smaller, more family-owned wineries are people that we go back a long time with and whom we love dearly and who like what we do for them. So what do you do for them? Well, what we do is we have, we have the website. Mm -hmm. uh, we had in November, we had 1.4 million hits on the website. In November? Yeah. Okay. And um, they have a page on the website which has got pictures of the farm and the tasting room and we're open on Mondays to Fridays and Saturdays and Sundays, whatever. There might be a picture of the restaurant, restaurant chef, winemaker. So they're always there on the website. And then once a month I do a radio broadcast for a wine that they choose. Um, so then I put up a page, this is the wine of the day. Now we're busy doing advent calendar. So every day there's a, there's a, um, a new wine or wines um, which run alongside my website partners with the broadcasting um, that goes on. And you know, if somebody's got a Italian son of an Italian count whose family have been making wine in Tuscany for 800 years, come to do a stage in their winery and then you know i get a picture and i'll do a little story about it and or you know you take mm. a place like like a cheese place like like fairview i mean they make great wine they make fabulous cheese they might have some mm, new traditional packaging or a new cheese that they're and then we do a little piece about them i i, I do a lot of work on twitter and facebook mm. um i've got over 5,000 twitter followers so if I go Facebook, Twitter, Instagram with one post, I can hit sort of between eight and 9,000 people. Mm. And those are people who specifically have asked to follow, to follow me. Yeah, yeah. So it's not like I've been and, you know, paid whatever it is to get 4,000 followers, mm. you know, which might include a 
lady butcher from Sarasota or something who has no interest in me. But the thing is that what I do find interesting and amusing is obviously the use of hashtags I think is very important. And I will put up a post, I mean, as I did for the Gin Festival yesterday. Mm. And I had, I probably had eight or ten gin producers, gin bars suddenly following me on mm. on Twitter. From all over the world. from all over the world. Yeah. yeah, and you know, I sort of think, how the hell does Joe Bloggs from Barbados know about me? Yeah. And I look across at Maddie and she says, hashtags. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't like hashtags. It's a lot of work, isn't it? It is a lot of work, yeah. but it's important because it grows your... Yeah. It grows your following, and that's on Instagram or that's on uh, Twitter and Instagram. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So my my I think my top post yesterday was the spliff inspired cocktail mm-hmm. by Connor from Mungston. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> and everybody loved the spliff inspired cocktail. Uh. <laughs> he probably had one of those uh, before he <laughs> made his monks. Yes, absolutely. Cannabis yeah. or his Hempton. Yeah. Well, it's, I, f- I find it fascinating how you can, um, how your brand can adapt over the over the yeah. centuries with it, or centuries with it. <laughs> <laughs> yes, centuries. In my case, centuries. In your case, centuries, to to from from publishing on on paper to hashtagging. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And absolutely. You, have to, you have to do that. Tell us a little bit about your your radio or your broadcasting stuff. I, I work, you record those at home. You don't yes, go I into, do. You don't go into a studio. I, do. I used to go into a studio when I lived in Cape Town. Now I live in in Johannesburg in the leafy Linden. Um, and um, as you know, I've had a I've had a I had an accident in March, and it's taken me sort of nine months to to recover from it. But um, I have my laptop by my bedside. Mm. And I just simply go to my my podcast recording program and I do it and I send it down here and then and this is to find music radio and there's a lovely lovely um, technical chap there called Mawande Lobby and Mawande and I have worked together for three or four years mm. and he knows me and he knows my style and then he does the editing and he cuts out the ums and the ahs mm. and the and um, and then he puts headers and footers on and then sends them back to me and then I actually embed them into my website when I'm writing about the uh, the particular wine yeah so it's uh, it's great fun I enjoy doing it um, I'm thinking of of a bit like you starting to create my own podcast mm. program because then it gives me much greater freedom Mm. and you know just post it up on on the website and people will go and listen to it yeah i think podcasts are very intimate and you get to get to know people intimately if you listen to them (coughs) yes Um, you do you do absolutely and my mission is to help all these brand owners i guess to to really tell their story because i think it's 90 percent about the story and it is it's a a little story is so important yeah. You know, and you see, I mean, you just take those lovely people yesterday yeah. at the at the at the gin festival. Um, I mean, obviously, one knows um, the gin. You know, I've seen pictures of it, etc. And here you have this person who is a electronics engineer or you know cement maker or something who's making absolutely sensational gin. Yeah. And I mean, look at the gin smiths, Colleen and Leslie, two <laughs> two retired psychologists. Living up in 
near Picketburg who wanted to be retired and now suddenly they're riding this incredible wave on a very, very small surfboard and producing medal-winning gins. I mean, the ginsmith gins are just absolutely amazing. Interesting people, very interesting people. Yeah, and uh, that's, that's, it's a wonderful way to record the people, I mean, the relationships that you've built up over the years and the people you meet, which I guess both you and I do. We get the opportunity while everybody has to work and do their daily thing, we meet interesting people. Yeah, absolutely. The challenge is always to monetize it and to get the most value out of those relationships. Yeah, absolutely. And to help them punt their products to possibly to a different Mm. audience. It's very special. It's a a lovely, lovely way to be retired, Holger. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I wish you well. I wish you lots of strength thank you your recovery and thank you go regaining your strength i get to throw away the walking stick yeah we look forward <laughs> to to seeing you without that stick yeah absolutely so do and, i yeah and a, and a good retirement in, in, in a new chapter in linden yes have you been to the the gin bar there you know no we have made a gin bar for you in linden uh. we have made a craft beer library for you in linden <laughs> so there's some wonderful things yeah. happening uh, I, I i haven't ventured forth <laughs> much yeah. um but i do i do have a beautiful garden to look at from my from my bedroom window and i'm a mad bird person so that's been that's been great fun too but I'll, in the new year, I think I'll, I'm going to have to start moving out a little yeah, bit. Yeah. Well, it's been great meeting oh, you. Oh, Holger, it's been such fun. It's been great being here at Asara. It's such a lovely venue. Isn't it amazing? Wow. Very special. So, so happy you could be here. Yeah. Thank you, Michael. Pleasure. Absolute pleasure.